Well, it started out as a simple little trip. Two pastors, they wanted to have some time together, some time away. And so uh, these pastors live in Canada. Uh, one of them had been away for a while, and the two pastors got together and they said, What are we going to do? So, well, let's go up into the mountains. There's this really big, beautiful lake. It's so beautiful. Both of the pastors had grown up. This was in Ottawa, Canada, and they both knew the lake, and they were excited. Crystal clear lake on a cool evening as the sun goes down in the, in the late spring, early summer. What a beautiful place to kind of unwind and, and just feel the Lord's presence. Then they drove there. When they got there, as they opened their doors, they noticed some sounds. There was a loud thumping sound, and then they heard some screams and some squeals and some yelling and some loud talking, and they were like, what is going on? This is not what we imagined. They came around a corner to the, the area they were going to sit along the beach, and they noticed there were about 150 to 200 high school students who were celebrating their high school graduation. Some of them were already very intoxicated, and many of them were doing all sorts of things and being ridiculous. And the pastor who had been away for a few years from Canada was disheartened. He was discouraged. He went, oh, man, really? And he started to get some, some moral indignation of these, these sinners, these kids, they're, they're interfering with my great plans. Doesn't, don't they know who I am? And as he was about to spew out the venom to his fellow pastor, he looked at his friend and he was, his friend was looking differently than him. His eyes were kind of off to the horizon and he had this look on his face. And so he didn't say anything, but then his friend says, wow, high school students, what an incredible mission field. Talk about polar opposite response to the events of that evening. One was, oh my gosh, I can't believe how terrible these kids are. They're, they're in the way. And the other, wow, won't it be awesome when Jesus gets a hold of their hearts? The, the author, the, the pastor who was the one who was convicted, he wrote, in one sense, he had seen and heard exactly what I did. In another sense, we had not seen and heard the same things at all. The difference was not the objective reality, but his compassion. This compassion for those kids. I'm reminded of a story when I was with uh, five other young men who had just graduated college like me. We were in southern Spain, northern Morocco, and uh, we were in a room full of Muslim, Moroccan Muslims, just an entire room. It was inside of a, of a ship as we were crossing the Mediterranean, about 200. And I remember going into this room to try to find a place to sit instead of sitting outside in the, the cold evening weather. And I remember being overwhelmed by the sounds and the smells and the cultural differences and trying to remember how do I position myself as to not offend these people. And I just was oh, so oppressed. And we, we decided we weren't going to sit in there. So we sat out on the, on the, the deck. And the five of us, six of us were sitting around talking. And we started talking, oh, man, you know what? All those 200, 250 men and women there's probably not a believer among them. And we started going, oh, that's terrible. What, what are we going to do? We don't speak their language. We don't really know their culture. We're not dressed like them. We're just six college grads on a mission trip. What, are we, what can we do? It's too much. And I'll never remember what happened next. 
We had two Adams on our trip, and one was big and one was small, so they were small Adam and big Adam. Big Adam, who was just the biggest teddy bear of a guy, looks to us with a big smile, and he goes, yeah, but our God's bigger than all that. Our God loves them more than we do, and he will reach them in due time. Just wait. What a, what a way to look at a room full of people that, are, that we, we don't know. They, they, they're worshiping a false god. They're going to hell. And he looks at it and goes, isn't it going to be great when God does a revival there? Or, or the guy who looks at the partying high school seniors who are the picture of debauchery right in front of them, and he goes, wow, what a mission field. See, in both of these instances, these men saw things clearly, and they saw them rightly, and that's exactly what we see right here, right now. Instead of seeing a group of students who are freaking out as a waste of time, or a group of individuals worshiping a false god that we could never, ever get the gospel to, instead of being overwhelmed, it points us back to the Lord. And that's exactly what Jesus wants us to see today as we dig into his word. So this is our big idea. The kingdom-oriented response to the overwhelming needs we see is to pray to the Lord for help as we proclaim the good news about Jesus. I tried to make it shorter, I'm sorry. (laughs) The kingdom-oriented response to the overwhelming needs we see is to pray to the Lord for help as we proclaim the good news about Jesus. See, we've been working our way through ever since the end of chapter 4. Jesus went into this long teaching. We know it as the Sermon on the Mount. After that, he went into the long teaching of his miracles and all of these wonders that he did. And finally, here at the end, he, he speaks one more time into the entire point of this entire section. And he's letting us know this is where we've been and this is where we're going. So the first thing we see starting in verse 35 is we see the nature of Jesus' mission. We see the nature of it. What is he here for? And we see this in verse 35. He says, what the Bible, Matthew says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. This all the cities and villages would be the area known as the Gal- Galilee, or around the Sea of Galilee. An ancient historian by the name of Josephus said there were no less than 204 cities of 15,000 people or more. So we're talking about a pretty sizable amount. He was only counting the cities that had walls. I mean, just think about that. What what kind of world is that where you have to, if it's a city, it has walls. If it doesn't have a city, it doesn't have walls, it's a village. And we don't even think that way, but that's the way they measured him then. So just counting the cities, we're talking about 3 million people in this area. And if Jesus were to visit every single one, two every single day, it would take him at least four months to go to the entirety of Galilee, not including the small villages. But Matthew says he went to all of them. This was a big undertaking. And Matthew summarizes it in one verse. There's going to be a lot of stuff to DVR when we get to heaven. It says proclaiming. This means to preach. And notice this word that's repeated, every. It's in there twice, and then it's kind of hidden in the word all, okay? Throughout every city and village is really what that says. But it's this idea of completion. As a matter of fact, this verse might seem pretty familiar to us. Because back in chapter 4, verse 23, we get this verse. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom 
and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So what we've got is we've got two bookends. The, the fancy word for this is an inclusio, right? So on one side, before we start the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew says, this is what Jesus is about. Then we go through the Sermon on the Mount and all the miracles, and now we get this. Jesus is all about. Matthew's saying, this is what Jesus was doing. The stuff inside is kind of letting us know what he taught when he was there. So this is a concluding section. We are really literally hitting the end of the first part of Matthew. And then in two weeks, we start right into the disciples going out. Verse 35 is summarizing Jesus' ministry. Look at the verbs we see here. We see Jesus went, literally Jesus walked places. Jesus taught, Jesus proclaimed, and Jesus healed. This is Jesus' mission in a nutshell. This is what he's about. And honestly, this is what we are to be about as well. We're to go, we're to teach, we're to proclaim, and we're to heal. Christians have always been about all four of those. But at this point, Jesus has decided he's going to include some more people in his, in his mission. Up to this point, Jesus has been doing it all himself. The disciples have been there, maybe for crowd control, maybe they're just learning, but they've been doing really nothing so far. And now Jesus goes, I'm going to tell you what's next. We are going to start this mission. So we see the, the nature of Jesus' mission. Now we see the motive for his mission. Verse 36, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like a sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees the needs here, and they are very great. As a matter of fact, he sees two needs. One is the needs of the crowd, and one is the needs of the disciples. So what we're going to do here is we're going to kind of, we're going to look at this verse, but we're going to go at it backwards, okay? So we're going to start at the end of the verse and talking about what does it mean to be a sheep without a shepherd, and then we're going to go to the compassion part. So Jesus sees their need. They, they need a shepherd. Seeing their need, he goes, there's a problem here. We have all these sheep running around. That's us. All humans are sheep. And they have nobody to lead them. Jesus, it says, because, this is Jesus' reason, because of my compassion, because of what I see. So this is a, obviously a sheep and shepherd metaphor. We see that coming here in a second with the word like. However, the metaphor actually starts before the word like. It starts before it with these two words, harassed and helpless. The word harassed means to be hunted down, to be torn. Some translations say distressed or bewildered or wearied. Helpless means to be sunk down powerless, to be dejected, miserable, one author writes, this idea of the sheep having suffered an attack from a predator. They've been flayed, their skin, their flesh is torn and mangled. Helpless means to be thrown down, wounded, ready to be eaten. See, sheep are pretty pathetic animals, if we're honest. And yes, it's the one that God compares us to the most. Sheep are actually defenseless when it comes to fighting against predators. They can barely care for themselves. They are not the perfect animal, but they are the perfect example of what an animal can be with a good shepherd. Sheep flourish under a good shepherd. Under a bad shepherd, sheep die. Ezekiel 34, verses 1 through 10, talks about this lack of a shepherd in Israel. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel 34, 5 and 6 is very much the same thing that Jesus is talking about here, except for instead of the crowds, it's the whole nation of Israel. This is what it says. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, 
and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. See right at the end there, that idea of searching and seeking for the sheep, that's what a good shepherd does. Remember the parable. He leaves the 99 to go find the one. So Jesus is showing this compassion. He's saying, they don't have a shepherd. We need to get them a shepherd. I am the shepherd. This is him claiming the role as shepherd of God's people. John 10, 14 makes this very clear, which is restating what Micah 5, 4 says, which is the Messiah will care for his people like a shepherd. See, the Pharisees have already shown that they can't do the leading. They, they cannot get it right. As a matter of fact, if we were to be honest, the, the Pharisees have harassed and made these sheep more helpless, haven't they? With more and more burdens on top of what the Bible teaches. See, these crowds are following Jesus, but they haven't figured out their purpose yet. They haven't figured out what the point is in following Jesus. They are enamored with him, but because of all the bad shepherds they've had, they're not quite willing to commit yet. Think about that. They've been so beaten down by the bad shepherds that when they see the real thing, they go, oh, I'm not so sure I want to stick my neck out yet for you, Jesus. John Piper writes, they will soon run out of pasture and starve. They will get lost or caught in some thicket and die. And in the meantime, they're harassed, wearied, and helpless. Now, the unbelievers you know may not seem to fit this description. But if you see them with the eyes of Christ and are not misled by their shell of self-assurance, you will recognize they are sheep who desperately need a shepherd. And honestly, the, the thing about it is, is that, again, sheep are so dumb, they don't even realize that they don't have a shepherd at times. And see, isn't that what we encounter here? Isn't that what we encounter in our world? People going about their business and not realizing they are going the opposite direction of what's healthy? See, sheep will go and they will eat things that will kill them, and then they'll share it with others because they go, well, I'm just a sheep. This, uh, this looks good. They will actually destroy themselves because they don't have a shepherd. And that's what we see in our world. But honestly, it, it's incredibly overwhelming, isn't it, to walk out into Oregon and look at all the people who don't want anything to do with this Jesus. You know, there's other parts of the country. I, I spent some time with some, some fellow pastors from the South, and their, their comment was, we got a whole bunch of people that think they're right with God because they go to church and they have this veneer of Christianity, and we got to punch through that. Here in Oregon, we have the exact opposite, right? We have people that are like, I don't want anything to do with God. I don't want anything to do with religion or Jesus. And it can be oppressive. One of the things I felt when I was walking through that, 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 that cabin of the ship was just the oppression of just knowing that these men and women and children are in the hands of the devil. And that's no different here. We might as well be living in a country that is a Muslim country, might as well be living in a country that is a communist country with the number of Christians we have here in Oregon. So this is meant to slap us in the face. This is meant to get us to go, Oh, this is too much. We can't do it because it's meant to stir up something in us. It's also meant to drive us to someone. So what is it meant to stir up? Well, it's meant to stir up that we have a need as well, and Jesus sees it here. Our need is we need compassion. We need compassion for the shepherdless sheep. Now, this word compassion is awesome. I love this word. Our, our definitions are kindness, mercy, pity, but, but the Greek just kills this. It's awesome. 
The word is splogzinomai. Splogzinomai, okay? This means a deep gut level compassion. This means in your bowels you feel this compassion. Now, Jesus is feeling this in his guts, right? Not just feels it, but he's suffering with them. You know, the, the Bible translate, many of our translators say heart, because that just sounds better. I mean, can you think about it? Honey, your face makes my guts stir. When I feel you, I feel like I need to go have some time in the bathroom. I mean, there's some, there's some things that just don't translate very well when it comes to talking to people about your feelings. But if we're honest, if we're honest, if you have a moment where you are anxious, if you have a moment when you, like I remember when I saw Katie for the first time, I remember because my legs went weak and I had to hold myself up against the wall and I had pterodactyls flying through my stomach, you know, that's what I felt. Now that had nothing to do, my heart's up here and we say, oh, my heart, I loved her with my heart. But it really, it's a gut feeling that is, you, you, can't, you can't make that happen, it just happens. See, that's what it is. It's like in Bambi when they talk about being Twitterpated. This idea of your whole person is wrecked by this. And this is where Jesus is. I'm reminded of Jesus looking out over his city, over Jerusalem, and weeping and going, oh, you all are going to choose the wrong thing. Because remember, yes, they wave the palm branches, and yes, they sing Hosanna, but in a few short days, they're out for his blood. This idea of compassion is something that's deep down inside. Throughout the Bible, compassion is encouraged. In the Old Testament, hundreds of passages. New Testament, Colossians 3.12, Hebrews 10.34, James 5.11. All of these are encouraging us to have compassion. And Jesus has compassion on us. In fact, Jesus' root, the compassion, leads to the fruit that we see of him doing what he did in verse 35 of healing and teaching and going. This is his motivation. He's doing all of this because of the compassion that he has. See, without compassion, we do not have Christianity. Without compassion, we do not have authentic Christian mission. So we need to not take this for granted because compassion is a cornerstone belief of Christianity. Our mission is not motivated. Jesus' mission was not motivated by, oh, they're so gross, I'm just going to have to go down there and do a big work to get rid of them. No, he goes, they're so lost. They're doing anything but coming to me. They're so lost. That's the compassion he has. Spurgeon writes about it this way. He says, our Lord was stirred with a feeling which agitated his inmost soul. He was moved with compassion. What he saw affected not his eye only, but his heart. He was overcome with sympathy. His whole frame was stirred with an emotion which put every faculty into forceful movement. He was moved by what he saw. And Christians throughout history have been known for their compassion. Now, if you're a thinking person at all, you know that there are lots of non-Christians out there that are compassion as well. And as a matter of fact, many times they actually may do a pretty good job of meeting people's needs but they don't go far enough. See, what we've seen with Christ throughout is that Christ goes, you have these needs, I'll deal with those, but I'm also gonna deal with down here. Remember the paralytic man, right? It's obvious, this guy can't move, and Jesus goes, I'm gonna forgive your sins. The guy's going, what about my legs, right? I mean, that, that's, that's the mindset that we have. Compassion is for the whole person. And so for us as believers, we are to be compassionate for the whole person. If the person's starving, you shouldn't be telling them about Jesus. Feed them and tell them about Jesus. 
You can't leave one without the other. They all need to be there. This compassion was stirred up. It's something that we need to have stirred up in us. But the thing about it is, is that compassion doesn't come from efforting. That compassion doesn't come from us going, I'm going to have compassion. It comes some other way. And this is the someone that he wants to turn us to. When we see the world, when we walk out the doors, when we go out to lunch later, and we're surrounded by people that are on the way to hell, that are under God's judgment, it's to make us go, yes, I need to have compassion on these people, but it's also meant to turn us to someone. See, here's the thing. We're just all sheep. There's nothing special about any of us in this room. We're all sheep. We all need a shepherd. Praise be to God that we've found the shepherd. We don't need programs. We don't need religion. What we need is we need to focus on the shepherd. Even when Jesus sends out the disciples, they're still sheep going out to other sheep. The disciples don't have it together. You don't have it together. I don't have it all together. But we know the one who does. And the thing that our world needs more than anything else, more than having all their felt needs met, is they need to be comforted with hope. So where does that come from? How do we do that? Do we muster it up? No, we don't. 2 Corinthians tells us where we get it from. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. See, God comforts us as our shepherd. He takes care of us as our shepherd, and we can't help but tell others. We need to tell others that compassion is there. When you are in God's sheep pen, and you look and you see the mangy sheep in the other sheep pen who haven't been fed, who are on the brink of death, we should have compassion and go, no, that's not okay. Those sheep should be here. And it comes from the fact that we've been so cared for. There's a story about Harry Winston, who's a famous jeweler. You probably all know, have heard of him. One day he was watching as one of his salesmen was selling a diamond to a Dutch merchant. And the, the Dutch merchant listened, and he was, he was, he was listening thoughtfully. And, and the man described the, the different aspects of it, the ratings and the clarity and the color. And the man says, well, that's a great stone, but it's not for me. Winston stopped what he was doing, and as the customer's walking out, he said, could I, could I talk to you for a sec? And he brings the customer over, and he lays the diamond down. He goes, could I show you this diamond again? And the man's like, sure, I guess. And then Winston started talking about the diamond. He didn't talk about anything that the salesman had said. Instead, he said, look how beautiful it is. And he started describing with all sorts of adjectives and all sorts of descriptive words about how beautiful that diamond was. And then the man said, stop, stop, I'll buy it, I'll buy it. I want that beauty. So as they were ringing him up and checking him out, the man goes, Mr. Winston, why did I buy it from you but not from him? And Mr. Winston said, that salesman is the best in the business. He knows everything there is about diamonds. However, I love diamonds. See, the love that we are to have for our Savior comes not from us efforting it out. Instead, it's the Lord who does it in us. What does 1 John 4.19 say? We love because why? He's first loved us. And that love poured into us is meant to overflow out into the world. And it overflows that way in compassion because we go, these people don't get it. They don't see it. 
And I want to show them to it because it is marvelous. I want to show you this diamond. I don't want to keep it to myself. Unfortunately, we are much more about um, taking care of ourselves and, and doing the things that we want and not as much about going out. One author said, we've stopped being fishers of men and are now caretakers for the aquarium. We need to be fishers of men. Jesus wants to awaken this compassion in his disciples. So the next thing we see is we see that Jesus' means for accomplishing his mission. What are his means? And there's two things, prayer and people. Now, I know some of you don't want to pray this. You don't want to pray, Lord, send out the harvesters because it might be you. But stay with me, okay? You need to understand what's being said here and what's not being said, all right? What is not being said here is that this week I need you all to sell everything and move to Zimbabwe. That's not the point of this passage. However, if the Lord puts that on your heart, go do that, please. There's more to it, though, and there's a very specific thing that Jesus is asking all of us today to do. And even as I say this, and even as we get into this, I know some of you are going, Okay, wait, I have to add something else to my Christianity. I've already got Bible time. I'm here at church. I tithe. I, you know, I do all this. And now I have to do something else? And you need to understand that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is not saying, all right, here's the next level. This isn't for the varsity crew. This is instead him describing this is what it means to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus is to be on the same mission as he is. And that mission is the saving of those who are lost. And it starts with compassion. What does it look like when that compassion goes in each and every one of you? I don't know. I'm not you. I'm not your conscience. I'm not the Holy Spirit. But I do know that we are called to have compassion on those who are lost. And isn't there not a more perfect time to talk about the lost as we are running up to Easter next week? I mean, it's on everybody's lips. Even if it's about bunnies and, and, and eggs and all of that, they're still talking about Easter. What an opportunity. So understand that this praying, this, this, this is not prescriptive, it is instead descriptive. It's describing what it means to follow Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is what you look like. And he says, compassion leads me to realize I can't do it, which leads me to prayer. So compassion always ends in prayer. It always goes to prayer. Now some of you it may stop there, others of you it may go on past that. Look at what verse 37 says. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Look at how Jesus sees the potential. That's what big Adam saw, right? He didn't see a room of people that are going to inhabit hell someday. He saw it as, isn't it going to be great when these, these Muslims here know the Lord? That's what he saw. And Jesus sees it right in front of him. He says to his disciples, he promised them. He said, I will make you fishers of men. Now it's coming to fruition. Right here, he says, you need to pray so you can have this compassion. And then, spoiler alert, in two weeks, verse 1, he starts sending them out. This is the answer to the promise that Jesus had given them. So Jesus switches metaphors. He says, the harvest is plentiful. This does not mean the harvest it's the harvest time. That's not what this verse means. Instead, what it means literally, it means harvest crop large. That's what it means in the Greek. That's the direct uh, translation. Harvest crop large. He's saying it's big. The harvest crop is big. 
This is not the end of time and it's the harvest at judgment. This is always, all the way through. The harvest was ripe when Jesus was there. The harvest was ripe in the 1200s. The harvest was ripe in the 1980s. The harvest is ripe in 2022. It's plentiful. It's full. But the laborers are few. Few means hardly any. Notice it does not say the tweeters are few, but the workers are few. Not the Facebook commentators are few. Not the meme sharers, not the sign holders, but the patient, plodding, resolute, industrious workers who have the winning of souls as their focus are few. The winning of souls has to be what we are about. See, we can't make it happen because the new birth is a miracle. Our goal here is not a big church and fancy and doing all these things. Our goal is to see God do the impossible in the lives of those who want nothing to do with them right now. See, we can't convince anybody to walk in the door and become a believer. All we can do is obey and show that compassion, and then the Holy Spirit flows through that. This is the way it's happened throughout history. Every single great awakening, every single revival has happened because of prayer. It has happened, and it will happen again. Look at what Acts 1.8 says. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you shall be my witnesses. This is exactly what we're talking about here. The Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then it spills over. What is witnesses? That is harvesters. This is exactly what Jesus was praying for right here, saying to pray for, is pray that the Spirit will fill us up and that we have that compassion that overflows. So he does it in us. How does he do it in us? Jesus tells us in verse 38, Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Therefore, because of what you now see, you must pray. Notice Jesus doesn't say, the harvest, is, the harvest is plentiful, I don't have enough workers, so go. He says, no, pray. Doesn't this seem like the opposite of what you should do? It seems like the exact opposite. I mean, some of you right now, maybe as we were going into this sermon, you were starting to get convicted, and you're like, I'm going to share the gospel at lunch today. You know what? I'm going to share the gospel to that grocery person. I'm gonna, the, the guy that pumps my gas, I know him. He always says, have a terrific day. I'm going to tell him how to have a terrific day by knowing Jesus. That's not what's said here. Instead, it's stop and pray and pray and pray some more. I remember a story of a, a friend of mine who had been seriously into some bad stuff and sin and just lost his job, even served some time. And then he came out and he was a believer. He fell in love with the Lord. And he was on fire for God. But he was an absolute baby Christian. And he had in his mind, he said, he read this verse, and he said, you know what, I'm going to go be a missionary. I'm going I'm to sell my house, I'm going to buy an RV, and I'm going to drive around the United States, and I'm going to tell people about Jesus in parks all over the place, and there's going to be this huge revival, and so on. He went to his pastor, and his pastor said, I like that idea. However, let's stop and pray for a little bit. And he goes, no, 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 I don't want to pray. I don't want to pray. I want to go do it. And the pastor said, no, you need to pray. Make sure this is what the Lord wants and it's not just something that you want. Pray about it. He goes, no, no, I don't want to do it. And he left and went off and did his own ministry. See, that's not what we're told to do here. We're told to pray first and then the Lord will empower us. Because if we go and we try to do an RV ministry around the United States telling people about Jesus in our own strength, then what are we doing? We're not doing what the Lord has called us to do. Instead, this word pray earnestly means to beg Beg, Lord, send out harvesters, even me. Send out harvesters. Are we willing to do that? 
The task looks hopeless. I mean, look at the contrast. The, the harvest is huge and there are hardly any laborers. But we need to remember that statistics are not ultimate. The living God is. Jesus says, pray. See, our side is the prayer meetings. His side is the divine heart of Jesus. And those two meet in our prayers. Our task is too much for us to try to come up with some man-made plan, some new program. Instead, we must stop and we must pray. Some of our techniques may work for a time, but if we don't bathe it in prayer, it's not what it's supposed to be. Spurgeon said, we cannot all argue, but we can all pray. We cannot all be leaders, but we can all be pleaders. We cannot all all be mighty in rhetoric, but we can be prevalent in prayer. See, remember, Jesus did not say, the harvest is big, go do it. He says, the harvest is big, stop and pray. You cannot do it. It's too big for you to do on your own. You must do it with me. John Piper again writes, God was willing that his miraculous work of harvesting be preceded by prayer. He loves to bless the world, but even more so, he loves to bless the world in answer to prayers. It is God's way before he does a great work of the Spirit uh, upon us to have them plead for the work. Therefore, the sign that God is going to bring in the harvest is widespread prayer in his churches. And it starts with each and every one of us. Are we praying for the harvest? The verse that says, send out the laborers. This means to thrust out, to get them out, to light a fire under them and move them out. And notice it says, his harvest. Not New Life Church Gladstone's harvest. Not the evangelical church. Not the Baptist church. But it's his harvest. See, sometimes, and I have to tell you, I was tempted. I've heard this passage preached before. And, and I was tempted to go some of the routes that I've heard, like the self-aggrandizing route that says, if it's going to be, it's up to me. I mean, that rhymes. That's good. You could preach that. You know, if it's going to happen, it's up to us to go do it. That's not what this passage is saying. I have also heard the guilt-ridden one. If you don't pray for your missionaries or if you don't go yourself, then God's hands are tied. And guess what? It's your fault that the harvest isn't happening. But praise be to God, whew, this is not what this is teaching. Instead, look at who's doing all the work in this. Who's doing all the heavy lifting? It's Christ. It's not the disciples. They've been standing around watching this entire time. They've not even been sent out yet. Who's the Lord of the harvest? It is Christ. He is the Lord of the harvest. In the parable of the soils, he's in charge of the angels who do the harvest. John the Baptist says he is the winnowing. He's bringing his winnowing fork. So Jesus says to pray, and then he doesn't even wait to pray. He sends them out. There's no break between verse 1 of chapter 10 and this last verse of chapter 9. It's all in the same flow. Jesus goes, you guys need to pray. Oh, and here we go. You're going. Isn't that interesting? Because here's the thing. It's the power of God that sends people out, not the power of guilt. It's the power of God that sends people out, not the power of your strategic plan. See, the seeds have been planted And the harvest has been happening now for 2,000 years. The prayer, this prayer, has been answered, is being answered, and will be answered. And just because Jesus' prayer has been answered and being answered and will be answered doesn't mean that the way he does it has changed. It still requires prayer from us and then people to fulfill that prayer request. So, are you feeling this is too much for you? That there's no way you can witness 
to a close friend or a coworker or the gas station guy, let alone go to the other side of the planet and witness, good. Take that to the Lord in prayer. If he's going to send you, he's going to empower you. If he's going to send you somewhere, he's going to give you the strength to do it. Trust him. Are you willing to trust him? Are you feeling guilty about not praying and not being a gospel world worker, whether it's here or somewhere else? Then feel that. Lean into that and take that guilt to him and confess it and say, okay, Lord, I'm feeling this. What is this from you? Because if it's from him, he's going to provide the means to get through it. If it's not from him and it's just you're feeling guilty, then at least you're praying and then continue to pray. We know the winning team. The harvest celebration has already started and will continue on until Judgment Day. Why not be a part of it now? So like I told you, I don't know what this looks like for each of you. There's too many of you and there's too many different ways the Lord's going to use this passage on you. So I don't know what it looks like for you. But I know for sure that what it does mean is it means we can never stop praying. We can never stop praying. And it doesn't have to be old King James English and be so flowery and beautiful that they'll write songs about it someday. That's not it. It's just simple prayer requests. I mean, we interact with non-believers all day long. Why are we not praying for them? Why are we not praying for opportunities? Do you have the courage to pray the prayer? Lord, send out the harvesters into the harvest even if it's me. Lord, send out the harvesters, even me. Yes, the harvest is in Zimbabwe, but the harvest is also right here in Gladstone, Oak Grove, West Lynn, Oregon City, Clackamas. It's here right now. So the Lord is asking us to pray for harvesters, even me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are such a good God. You do not leave us here alone to try to figure things out on our own. You do not leave us to try to have the best evangelism plan or the best outreach plan or the best mission plan on our own. But Lord, you are here to show us where to go. Lord, we have been so comforted and we have hope. Lord, I pray that it would overwhelm in us, overflow in us to the people around us. Don't let us keep it to ourselves. Lord, help us to be a people that pray and to pray that prayer, even though it's scary, even though it's not what we want to do. Help us to pray, Lord, send the harvesters, even if it's me. Lord, we pray that now. In Jesus' name, amen.